We're happy to uh, bring to you a message concerning the nation of Israel, and the question, can Israel survive, can be answered emphatically, yes, and we can all go home. Want to do that? Or we can go into a few details if you'd like to. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 10. Romans 10, we'll read verses 20 and 21 and go down into Romans 11 and read through verse 15. Romans 10, starting with verse 20 and going through Romans 11, verse 15. Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? This tells me that if the Jews are not received again into the sight of God, then there is no hope for the Gentiles. Because when they're received back again, it'll mean life from the dead for you and me. So that, to me, correlates pretty closely the reacceptance of Israel with the resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. When we consider that the Jews cried out to have Jesus crucified, we might begin to wonder a little bit. Now, is it possible that because of this act of theirs, God has cast them off forever? Is it possible that God turned to the Gentiles to destroy Israel, to do away with Israel altogether, never again to have anything to do with him. I attended revival services in Baton Rouge one time. A man with whom I worked invited me to go along with him, and uh, the minister preached about Israel. One of the statements he made was, God will never again have anything to do with Israel. They killed his son, and he's through with them. Now, I can't quite buy that, 
because my Bible doesn't teach that. They killed his son, yes. At the same time, God has said, I will accept them again eventually. Let's go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 22 through 25. We'll notice Jesus before Pilate. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And this is where many people in the world get the idea that Jesus' blood has fallen upon the Jews and God therefore looks upon them always as being blood splattered because the blood of his son is upon them. And therefore God will never turn to them again nor have them turn back to him. But there are many, many scriptures within our Bible in both Old and New Testaments show to us that Jesus uh, has been sacrificed for both Jews and Gentiles. The early church was made up entirely of Jews and that God will accept the Jews back into his good graces again. You know, Pope John XXIII, who I guess was uh, quite favored of the uh, Catholics, they thought for a while that he would be an interim pope and that probably he wouldn't bring about much change or do very much because he was an elderly man when he was elected pope. Pope John Twenty-Third saw fit to forgive the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. And I thought that was mighty big of him. To forgive the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. Until this time, mostly in Catholic countries, but in many other countries as well, the Jews had been persecuted for being Christ killers. And even today, many Catholics and many non-Catholics believe that Jesus was killed by the Jews and therefore the Jews remain under the wrath of Almighty God. But is this true? Does God look at his original people through eyes that are ready to destroy? Or does God look at them through eyes that are ready to forgive? And maybe we should look into our scriptures and find out about this. Let's go to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51. And as you're turning there, I'd like for you to know that there's a word we're going to encounter there. And when we encounter that word, I want to know what your reaction is going to be. So I'll mention the word to you and see what your reaction is. What do you think of when you hear the word battle axe? That's what I thought. You either think of your wife or your mother-in-law, don't you? Now, those of you who are not married don't understand this yet, but you will. But the word battle axe or words battle axe in the Bible have reference to something other than one's wife or one's mother-in-law. They have reference to the Jewish people, to these people of God who were selected by him through Abraham to be his spokesman to the world. Let's read from verses 17 through 23, Jeremiah 51. Every man is brutish by his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. 
They are vanity, the work of errors. In the time of their visitation they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms, and with thee will I break in pieces the horse and his rider, and with thee will I break in pieces the chariot and his rider. With thee also will I break in pieces man and woman, and with thee will I break in pieces old and young, and with thee will I break in pieces the young man and the maid. I will also break in pieces with thee the shepherd and his flock, and with thee will I break in pieces the husbandman and his yoke of oxen, and with thee will I break in pieces captains and rulers. Now, that sounds like God is going to use the people of Israel for a specific purpose. He's going to use them as a battle axe, as weapons of war. And it sounds as though there will not be a man or a nation to stand before them whenever God is ready to use them in this way. We're watching what's happening at uh, Camp David. We're wondering what turn matters will take. We're wondering if President Carter and Menachem Begin from Israel and President Sadat from Egypt will be able to bring about peace in the Middle East. We're wondering this for several reasons. One, because if war erupts, we don't know but what the whole world will be dragged into it. And you young men out there might be rushed into service and rushed overseas. And also we're wondering if they don't succeed and a war does erupt, what will Russia do? Will that pit the United States against Russia? Or will Egypt be against Israel and perhaps Syria against Israel and Lebanon against Israel and maybe Saudi Arabia against Israel and certainly Iraq against Israel? And will Israel just mop up and take over more than just the West Bank? and down into the Sinai Peninsula? Will Israel spread out into greater lands and overcome many more foes? Or if they do accumulate a peace treaty at Camp David, we wonder if this might not fulfill the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39, where the people are brought back from the sword and they dwell every one of them without bars and without gates, where they seem to be living at peace before the great enemy from the north comes down to annihilate. And so we keep a wary eye upon Camp David and upon the politicians that are gathered there to try to wring out some sort of peace. But I have a, a little concern about what's going on there, and the reason for this is because of our president. He calls himself a born-again Christian, but he doesn't know his Bible very well. I'll have to say that to you, because he thinks that Egypt ought to have the West Bank back and that Egypt ought to have the Sinai Peninsula back, and that Egypt ought to have the uh, little land to the west back, I've forgotten what it's called, the Gaza Strip. And he feels that Israel ought to give these things up, or at least make arrangements so that these things can be given back to Israel, back to Egypt. He doesn't seem to know that God has promised to Israel, this is your land. I have given it to you, and you shall inherit it. 
And I wonder how deep his religion goes and how far he has looked into God's word to find out what's going on. Jeremiah said, or God said through Jeremiah, you people of Israel are my battle axe. I'm going to use you to destroy, to cut your way, to hack out a country, to build in the wilderness, to make a land again. You're going to be against everyone. I'll break in pieces the horse, the rider, the chariot, his rider, man, woman, old, young, young man and maid, the shepherd and the flock, the husbandman, yoke of oxen, and captains and rulers. I'm going to break all these things down through you, my people, Israel. Can Israel survive? Oh, but yes, Israel can survive and Israel will survive. I would say this, if it were not for the fact that God had promised them survival, then certainly they would fall. And also there seem to be a few places in the scriptures that indicate that they will come right near falling. And we'll get to one or two of those in a little bit. I've got something I'd like to show you on the overlay. I've got a copy up here and I'm going to hide behind this screen while you look at it. And for those of you who can't see, I'll read this off for you. The Arab nations, we're not going to read the square mileage, you can see that there. But as far as the population of the Arab nations is concerned, Algeria has better than 13 million, Bahrain, 207,000, Iraq, 9,440,000, Jordan, 2,217,000, Kuwait, 570,000. Now, Kuwait is a very small country. You'll notice that it has about... 6,000 square miles, which isn't very much. But in Kuwait is contained about one-fifth of all the oil reserves in the world. In other words, it's a, it's a land of oil. Everything underneath the desert land there seems to be oil. So Kuwait is very powerful as far as its influence is concerned. doesn't have very many people, doesn't have very much land, but it is a very wealthy nation, extremely wealthy. Lebanon has 2,645,000. Libya has 1,869,000. Morocco, 15,310,000. Muscat and Oman, which are little countries um, off in the desert there, 565,000. Qatar, 100,000. Qatar is another very wealthy state with oil. Saudi Arabia, you hear about it quite often because um, the uh, leader of the oil producing countries comes from Saudi Arabia and his country does produce very much of the oil that we use in the United States. His country and Louisiana, I might mention, are the two big oil producers in the world. Saudi Arabia, 7,200,000. South Yemen, 1,220,000. Syria, 6,294,000. Trucial Oman, 185,000. Tunisia, 5,137,000. Egypt, 33 million and better and Yemen 5 million, making a total of the Arab nations 104,835,000. Now you notice that little blurb down at the bottom. It says Israel, 2,889,000. Israel has 2 million, well almost 3 million, against almost 105 million Arabs. And you might add to that if you wanted to Iran. Now, Iran is a Muslim country. It's not an Arab country, so I didn't put it down. 
But it is a Muslim country, and it is a very powerful country because it too has quite a bit of oil. And so you might add Iran to that if you want to. But you've got here three million people against 105 million people, which in essence means that the Jews, if they are to go to battle against the Arabs, are fighting 36 to 1. For every Jew, there are 36 Arabs to grapple with him. Now, how many of you would like to go out and fight against 36 opponents all at the same time? I don't suppose any of us would. Okay, you might lower that screen now if you will, please. Thank you. So this is what Israel is against. This is what it's up against. All these countries, all these nations, all these peoples, all of them fighting, hoping for the shedding of Israel's blood. And as you know, from the very beginning of Israel, back in 1948, and even before that, the Arabs wanted to oust the Israelis. I might mention to you that after World War II, well, really during World War II, and shortly thereafter, when the Jews began to look for a homeland because Hitler was decimating them in every country he could lay his hands on, when they started looking for a homeland, their minds turned naturally back to the land that God had promised to Abraham. And so they tried with every ounce of their being to get back to that land, if it were at all possible. And some of them did get back there. Some of them managed to save some of the material blessings they had received, and they went back to the land. And the Arabs at that time welcomed them with open arms. I guess this was really a little bit before World War II. The Arabs opened them with open arms because the Jews came in with money and they paid out good money for land that would not produce. The Arabs were kind of a nomadic people. They didn't lay much claim to the land anyhow. They'd move here and they'd move there and they, they weren't very stable. They figured these Jews that were coming from Germany and from Poland and from different places in Europe wouldn't last very long. And so they sold their lands readily and took the money from the Jews and thought, now we've got their money they're going to play out before long. They'll leave this country and we'll have the land back. So we'll have the Jews' money and land both. But what disappointed them was that the Jews stuck it out. And they stayed. And then the Arabs began to get a little bit upset about it. And finally they said to the British, we don't want any more of these Jews in here because they're taking over our lands, forgetting that they had sold their lands to the Jews. And so the, the British, you remember, tried to put a stop to the Jews going in. But where could they go? Their backs were to the wall. They had to go someplace. And the place they chose was Israel. If I'm not mistaken, I think the United States cut them off about that time and wouldn't let them come into here. But any, at any rate, they were looking for a place and they decided it had to be there or death. And so many of them went in by hook or crook, but they went in. And the battle took place, you remember, in 1947-1948 and the Jews established their homeland, their nation of Israel, in May of 1948. President Truman, the United States of America, was the first country to recognize Israel as a nation. And I think that is to our benefit. I think God has blessed us immensely because of that. But we've got a president now that's trying to give it all away and trying to sell us back to the Arabs. We're being sacrificed on the altar of Arab oil and we are in danger of judgment from God. Really, we might ask the question, can America survive? If we pit our strength against Israel, 
which seems to be the way Carter is heading. I hope he is not, but it seems to be the way he is heading. If we pit our strength against Israel, and if we, because of Arab oil, play into the hands of the Arabs, you can say goodbye, United States, because God will not have it that way. God is for his people, Israel. Always has been, even though he's cast them out, he's watched over them, he's bringing them back again, and God always will be for his people. So God said through Jeremiah, you're my battle axe. I'm going to use you to destroy, to cut down, to hack out, and you will be my people once again. You know, a lot of people have come to believe that the United States of America was the battle axe of God. And when I was growing up, we used to say, well, the United States has never lost a battle. And then we'd have to look at the Civil War and we'd say, well, the Yankees lost one uh, because we don't learn the Civil War like they do up in Yankee land, exactly. Say, that, well, the Yankees lost one, but as, as the United States, we have never lost a battle. Have you seen that change recently? We were over there in what used to be French Indochina, and we were fighting what was called a little third-rate country, and they whipped the tar out of us. North Vietnam sent us packing. Well, there are a lot of reasons for it, I'll grant you. The people back home were not supporting it, and a lot of the, the peaceniks and whatever were against it, and uh, a lot of the senators were against it, and we just didn't have our whole heart in it and all that, and I don't really care whether you were for it or against it. The thought is, they beat us. And I think they beat us because we were turning aside from God, because our attitude toward Israel was beginning to change, and we were not standing up for Israel as we once were, and we were not standing up for morality. Now, we've been talking about morality for three or four nights. We were not standing up for the ways of God, nearly the way we should. You remember when the PLO attacked Israel, March 11th of this year. Now, it would seem to me that the, the uh, Palestine Liberation Army, or organization, which the PLO is, would learn sooner or later that every time they attack Israelis anywhere in the world, something's going to give. And it was not very long before the Israelis invaded Lebanon, wiped out some of their camps, and uh, put the PLO to flight. And yet they continue constantly trying to do damage to the people of Israel. Seems like they would learn, but they haven't learned yet. And I really believe the Arabs haven't learned yet that they can't get by with fighting against God's people. The reason they can't learn this is because in their holy book, the Koran, they believe they are the people of God. That it was not Isaac that Abraham sacrificed, but Ishmael. And it was through Ishmael that the promises were to come. And it is Ishmael that owns the land. And so we can say from the Christian viewpoint and from the uh, viewpoint of Judaism that the Jews own the land. The Arabs say, no, God has promised it to us. And certainly, if that were true, then we ought to take their side. But it isn't true. Their holy book plays into their hands. So we see then, because of some of the attacks that have been made upon Israel and the fact that, that Israel has uh, put out reprisals very quickly and very strongly and sometimes has caused uh, extensive damage, uh, property loss, killing of, of many people, the world has kind of risen up in arms and said to Israel, you've overreacted. 
And the world has begun to react against Israel in a, in a very strong way. And the United States is beginning to act that way too. It was about, uh, I'd say maybe eight months ago, one of our senators from out west, now I've forgotten which one it was, I didn't take a note at the time, but one of the senators from out west said, now it's time for us to drop Israel and accept the Arab nations. It's time for us to realize that we've got to go along with the Arabs and not with Israel. God's word tells me that Israel is the people of God, that God will use this people as his battle axe, and that in the last days Israel shall survive though many other nations will not. Turn with me to Zechariah 12. We'll read the first eight verses. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a cup of trembling everywhere. Really nobody wants to have anything to do with it and yet everybody realizes that something must be done with it or the whole world is going up in flames. Either the Middle East question is to be settled or there's going to be a World War III. And almost everybody realizes it regardless of which side he's on, whether he's for the East or the West, whether he's for the Arabs or the Jews. Everybody seems to realize that this is the crucial spot in all the world. This is a place where the world is going to meet. And either it's going to meet in peace or it's going to meet in bloodshed. And that's why President Carter has called these other two men over to Camp David and is trying to the best of his ability to work out some plan for peace. I don't know how good his ability is. I don't know exactly what the time schedule God has is. So I don't really know whether they're going to work out peace or not. I can see that there is a time of peace coming. Whether it will be as an outcome of this or not, I don't know. There is going to be a little time of peace from uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 when the Jews will think they've got it made and they've got a protector. But it won't work out that way for very long. I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. And that tells me we'd better walk a little carefully when we tell Begin, give up the West Bank. When we tell him, give back the Arabs all their land. It's theirs. You took it from them wrongfully. You beat them out of it. Give it back to them. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Now God is as capable of destroying the United States as he is of destroying Russia. And if we get to the point where we burden ourselves with Jerusalem, to the point where we want to cast out the Jews, to the point where we side with the Arabs, we will be cut in pieces. Plainly and simply, God says this will happen. And he says it will happen to everybody that burdens himself with Israel, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. God is never outwitted, and God is never outnumbered. If all the four billion people in the whole earth were to gather themselves against this few people of Israel down there, this mighty small little land, then all the four billion people of the earth 
would suffer because of it. And I'm not saying that Israel won't suffer either. Because we've got a, a text that shows that Israel will suffer too. But I am saying that God will see to it that everybody, everybody that burdens himself with Israel, with Jerusalem, is going to suffer the consequences. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. And that tells me something that's going to happen in the very near future. And that is that the Israelis are going to quit putting their trust in the United States. They're going to say, we don't have any friends anymore. They're going to say we can't rely upon the United States anymore. Our trust is going to be in ourselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and in the strength that God gives us. We can't rely upon any other nation on the earth. We've got to rely upon ourselves and upon Almighty God. And it is at this time that God will look favorably upon them. And it is at this time that God will begin cutting in pieces the nations of the world. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath. Any of you t ever take a torch and have a, a bunch of um, kindling piled up, get some good fat pine and piled up there and, and touch that torch to it? Do you ever do that? You ever get ready for a bonfire and touch a torch to what you've got piled up there and watch it go up? God said this is the way Judah is going to be in the last days. The governors of Judah will be like a hearth of fire among the wood, like a torch of fire in a sheep. They shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. <clears throat> and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Now it seems to me that we've seen some things in the last few years that almost approach this. I don't really believe this has, has happened yet, but it almost approaches it. Because every time the Arabs have attacked, the Jews have beat them back, haven't they? The last time, it was a little bit harder for them to do because the Arabs attacked on the Holy Day, you remember, and they weren't quite prepared. But, but they were beginning to win when Russia stepped in and said, well, we ought to have peace here. We, we shouldn't have this bloodshed because Russia could see the handwriting on the wall. She knew that Israel was going to defeat those Arabs and win over more land. And so she said, well, we ought to have some peace in the Middle East. Let's see if we can work it out. So Jerusalem is going to be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. The feeble person shall be like David. You remember David going out against Goliath? Kind of feeble, I guess, if you look at it that way. And certainly the Israelites thought he would be feeble. And they thought at first they might have a champion to go out against Goliath, but nobody showed up. And so David went out. Put on some armor, and it was too big for him, and it was too unwieldy for him. And he said, I can't wear this. It won't do me any good. I'll be stymied. And so he later decided and went out with his slingshot and five smooth stones. The feeble person at that time will be like David who defeated the greatest foe that the Israelites had ever had up to that time, at least in one man, stood there tall, strong, fierce. 
David came up to him in the name of the Lord. And that's what these Jews are going to do in the last days. They're going to go against their enemies in the name of the Lord. Up to date, they've gone out in their own power and in their own strength. They will soon realize that they can't do that anymore. They can't win wars by themselves. And when the United States backs down from them, whether it be uh, reluctance to sell arms or whatever it might be, when the United States backs down from them, they'll have to say, our hope and our strength has got to be in ourselves through Almighty God. And he will give us the strength necessary to conquer our foes. So the feeble one at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. The house of David, the strong one, shall be as God. And who can defeat God? Who has ever defeated God? Who has ever defeated God? Not a person. Not a nation. Not a consortium of nations. No one anywhere has ever defeated God. And the house of David will be as God in that day. Let's go back a little bit to Jeremiah again. This time to chapter 30. And we'll read here verses 4 through 17. Jeremiah 30 beginning with verse 4. These are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Now, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, and Jeremiah said, I see everybody with, with their hands on their loins like they're in childbirth. They're just pained. They're aching. They've got problems. They don't know which way to turn. But they're going to be saved out of it, for God will take their part. Verse 8, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Now you see the, the connection of the two there? I'm going to save you, but I'm not going to leave you unpunished. You've got some punishment coming because you have denied me. And if we jump forward to the New Testament, you've crucified the Messiah. You've got a punishment coming, but I'm going to save you. Now, I know you've got a lot of questions about that. Will God save the ones that crucified and all that? I would say this. God will save the Jews the same as he saves the Gentiles through their acceptance of Jesus Christ. And I think in the last days we'll see many accepting Jesus Christ. But let's go on. For thus saith the Lord, Thy bruise is incurable. And thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. The United States? 
They seek thee not, for I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. Therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity, and they that spoil thee shall be a spoil, and all that prey upon thee will I give for a prey. For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they call thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Now, if you go back into the history of Israel, you will notice that there have been great nations opposed to Israel, great nations that no longer exist, but Israel is there. You can look at the worldwide empires of yesteryear that fought against Israel and conquered Israel. And Israel is still there, and they're buried in the dust. Why? Simply because God has said, I'll never make a full end of you. I'll punish you. I'll scatter you. I'll make you wish sometimes that you hadn't been born, and you'll be pleading for your life, but I'll never put an end to you. Let's go to Zechariah 14. This will be our last scripture. You may be disappointed that we didn't go to... uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, but we referred to it. And if we went to every scripture that we'd like to get in, you'd be here until Sunday, and it'd all be one long sermon. So we're going to cut it off after this. Zechariah 14, the first four verses. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Brother McGall, who was um, one of my teachers in college, Brother S.E. McGall, don't know how many of you knew him, very fine man, very good student, very astute in his observations of world affairs and in his observations of the scriptures and the prophecies contained therein. He said, now it's possible that these nations that are gathered against Jerusalem might be gathered next to, against being around or close to, not necessarily in opposition to. And I respect him for the thought that he had but he lived in a day that's gone by when the United States was favoring the nation of Israel. And today the United States is turning away. And I I think the more I read this, that it really means I will gather all nations in opposition to Jerusalem, to battle against Jerusalem, to war against my people. And I'm not saying that dogmatically. It, It may still be that there be some nations, and hopefully the United States might be included, that would not war against Israel. But I can see the I can see the turn of events taking place in our day. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, this is the point where the Jews will almost be defeated. Almost. It looks as though they're gone, because half of the city is gone, and it just looks like they cannot stand. They're ferocious, they're God's battle axe, even the weakest of them is like David and the strongest of them is like God, but there are overwhelming forces that come down against them and they cannot stand, it seems. But notice the next verse. Then shall the Lord go forth. Oh, he's promised them, I'll not let you be completely decimated. 
You will not be destroyed from off the face of the earth. Then shall the Lord go forth. Once they've been punished, and once they've seen that they've done wrong, and once they've made their amends with their God, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. That's when he fought in the day of battle. And somebody was mentioning last night or night before last how God has fought. And uh, you look up the ways he's fought. It's been in a lot of different ways. He's fought with hailstones. He's fought with hornets. He's fought with, um, uh, what would you call it, um, deception where people thought all the Israelites were killing each other. It looked like blood out there. And it was only the sun shining upon the water. But whatever, God has fought in different ways. <clears throat> and he's going to fight again. He's going to do it for his people. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now, it's my belief, and probably half of you will jump on me after this is over with, and the other half might stand by my side, I don't know. But it's my belief that the, there's a transference of thought here, and it has reference to the one who shall come back to this earth gloriously, the one who was slain upon the cross, that it really changes thoughts. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountains shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south, and you shall flee to the mountains and so forth. God is going to protect his people finally. It looked like they're gone. It looked like they're overpowered. It will seem as though their nation will be completely destroyed. But God opens up his weaponry and aims at the enemies of Israel, and down they go. Israel finds a hiding place, and Israel will be saved. Now, it's interesting to learn a little bit about Israel. Can Israel survive? Yes, can and will. But it doesn't mean anything, really, unless it stirs within us the thought, the reminder that Jesus Christ shall soon return to this earth. The events of the present day, you can watch them on television, they're happening over in Camp David, they're happening over in the Middle East. The events of the day herald the soon coming of our Lord and Master. And the question that we want to ask tonight is, are you ready for that return? Have you prepared your life for his coming again? Have you accepted Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism? Are you living up to the standards of God and of Christ? Are you ready for the return of the Savior?